Welcome to Project Vox Populi, where the people speak their truth. Welcome to Project Vox Populi, where the people speak their truth. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I want to thank you for joining me. Please visit VeritasRadio.com to listen to the entire episode. Before I introduce Christopher Bledsoe Sr., tonight's witness on Project Vox Populi, I want to give you some background on how I met Chris and how I learned of his story. You may have heard me say that a few weeks ago, I was privileged to have been invited to a gathering of minds in Philadelphia. Among the participants were many of the names that you have heard on this very program. One of them was James Fox. During the main event that took place the last night of this gathering, James Fox approached me and told me of Chris Bledsoe's story. He told me that I needed to meet this gentleman and that he had a very important story to tell and emphasized that again and again. He finally introduced me to Chris and his wife. After I listened to an overview of his story, I knew right then that I had to share it with all of you on Vox Populi. There have been many UFO cases addressed on various television documentaries throughout the years. Many of these are forgettable, many are biased, and then there are a few that present the facts as they are. What you are about to hear tonight, directly from the witness, is an extremely compelling case of UFO sightings, an alien encounter, and possible alien abduction. It all began on January 8, 2007, in Fayetteville, North Carolina, on the banks of the Cape Fear River. The main witness in this case is Christopher Bledsoe Sr., Bledsoe, a successful builder and commercial pilot, was well-liked and respected in his community. On the day of the strange events, he was fishing with four other men, Donnie Ackerman, Gene Robinson, David MacDonald, and Chris Bledsoe Jr. Ackerman, Robinson, and MacDonald worked for him as framing subcontractors. And here's some background on the witness. Christopher Bledsoe is a commercial pilot and from 1986 to 2005, owned an award-winning construction business in Fayetteville, North Carolina. He was nominated as Businessman of the Year in 2003 by the National Republican Congressional Committee and was invited to President George Bush's inauguration. He's a rescue scuba diver and, prior to his experience, was a noted hunter on record as having killed one of the largest bears in North Carolina. In January 2007, Chris his son, and three of his subcontractors witnessed a series of terrifying sightings of unexplained phenomena. They were investigated by the organization MUFON and a scientist from the space industry. Their experience was featured on the Discovery Channel's 2008 series, UFOs Over Earth, The Fayetteville Incident. Chris currently lives in North Carolina with his wife Yvonne and their four children. He owns chickens and dogs and keeps a large garden. He loves backpacking and nature, and since his experience, Chris has given up on the sport of hunting. And directly from Fayetteville, North Carolina, I would like to introduce, for the first time on Veritas and Vox Populi, Christopher Bledsoe. Hello, Chris, and welcome. How are you? How are you, Mel? Uh, 
Appreciate you inviting me on. It's my pleasure. But before we, we dive into your case, Chris, I think it will be important for the audience to get to know you first. Tell us who you are, where you grew up. Tell us about your business experience and growing up in North Carolina. Well, um, I was born in October of 61, uh, south of Fayetteville, southeast of Fayetteville, about 20 miles or close to it out in the country. I live within a quarter of a mile where I was born, and my father lives within a half a mile where he was born, and his father before. All this land out here was uh, basically 100 years our family's been in this area, so I'm not new to Fayetteville. The construction business was something my father got into at an early age and in his late teens, hating farming and of course, I cropped tobacco and, and worked in the farm uh, with my grandfather and worked with my dad when when um, farm, the crops were, were in the field. So I ended up uh, getting out of high school, couldn't afford to go to college in those days. So uh, I went right into the construction business and worked with my dad, and he is... Um, he lives next door to me to this day. He still does a little construction, but I took the business to a new level. Basically, we were building 100 homes a year. Um, for many years there, we did. And I got very sick with Crohn's disease in the 80s, and it nearly killed me. And the doctors told me if I didn't get rid of this business, it was going to get rid of me. So. I sold out uh, the construction business while I was in the bed, believe it or not. I, I was very sick with Crohn's to the point where the accountants and, and all were at my bedside when I was discussing the deal. What is Crohn's for those who don't know? Well, it's hard to understand or explain what it is, but it's a, it's a debilitating intestinal digestive disease that will you can't eat anything nothing's it zaps the life from you basically it's, it's like a cancer you pray for good days and just hope you have a good day and i'll get into that but to to this day uh, i don't have it anymore it was it was well the day i was abducted i was healed from it so huh okay and as a successful developer, how did this, and we'll, we'll, we'll jump a little bit because I want to just talk about the overview first of the event and then we'll go in chronological order. This happened, if I remember correctly, January the 8th, 2007. That's two days after my daughter was born. Tell us what happened that day before the event. Well, um, like I said, I've retired from from being sick, sold this company in 2005, and pretty much just became bored, needing something to do, was still very sick, but my father, actually a brother-in-law, had a home down on the coast that he needed help, and my dad taught me into to taking my son during the summer and 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 going down and and helping out on this house so i actually was doing a little bit of work consulting helping this big project along kind of part-time and the guys that worked 
uh, as subcontractors for us then um, was finishing up on that house. And I had, it was like a Monday or Tuesday, I think, the, the 8th of 07 was, was during the week. But earlier Friday, I had, I was at the job site and told them when they got finished up, uh, we'd performed a walkthrough inspection to come by and I'd see to it that they got their money. So that's kind of what started it all. But Chris Jr. and I was at home that day, and it was about lunchtime, I guess. These guys drive up and was excited to be done and finally be home because they'd been gone for three or four months down to the coast. And so we got them paid, and they went along to the to the bank and called back and said, hey, we want to go fishing, and invited me to go. And Chris Jr. and I, so. How old was Chris Jr. at the time? He was 17. Okay. And so he, uh, they actually needed me because I had the only four-wheel drive truck. And it was a pretty nasty road going down to the river to sit on the bank where these guys like to go. So, But that's kind of how it, how it started. So. Oh, okay. So... You all got in the truck. How many were you? There were three three men and my son. There were five of us total. We were in a four-door four pickup truck. So it was you, your son, and three subcontractors. That's correct. Okay. So you picked him up, and you started driving towards the fishing area. That's right. The fishing area is about two miles from where they live. And they're kind of kind of in between where I live and the river. They're like not very far out of the way to, to pick them up on the way, you might say. Was that a very secluded area? Well, the river is just for where we go. It's, it's farmland, and there's a there's a, a paved road called Marsh Road, and it was along about two thirty when we when we arrived at the, the river. But Marsh Road is a paved road, and if you imagine looking over and seeing a big field, like a sort of like a cornfield, mm -hmm. and the dirt road that crosses that cornfield to a tree line, and when you get across this 200-yard field wide to the trees, then the road dies down through the woods a quarter of a mile and makes one turn, and it, it stops at a dead end about a half acre size large grassy area where you know people would camp and park alongside the river sometimes swimming just a recreation area private private place mm -hmm. so we arrived there about 2:30 and it was a cool day i'd say 50s maybe not not really cold but cool and of course i wasn't all that into to fish, and I'm just glad to be out of the house. And Chris Jr. was enjoying himself. He was fishing with these other three gentlemen. So long about 4 o'clock, I was a bit bored. I big into hunting in those days. I used to hunt a lot. And I just mentioned to these guys, I'm, look, I'm going to walk on down in the woods further on in and see if I can spot some wildlife before it gets too dark. So I walked down in the woods about a quarter of a mile or less, you know, two, three hundred yards maybe. Found me a big old oak tree on a ravine, a gully that spills into the river. 
and it started getting dark in the forest. It gets dark quicker than it does if you're out in the open, of course, and I didn't have a flashlight, so I made my way on out. Didn't see anything. Didn't hear anything. Didn't see anything. Just, just you know, nothing out of the ordinary. It came on out to where these gentlemen were fishing, and it was still daylight. The, the sun was about top of the trees. And I mentioned to them, I said, look, you guys ready to go home or you want to fish some more? And they're like, well, we want to fish. We just you know, just got here at 2.30 and it's like 5.30 or 5 o'clock about this time. And in, in January, it gets dark pretty quick, yeah. you know, just after 5, 5.30. So I said, well, look, let's get some firewood together. It's going to get cold tonight. Let's get a fire going. Um while we can still see. So everybody laid their rod and reels down, and the five of us kind of scurried along the edge of this grassy area and picking up deadfall. Made a huge pile of dead firewood, um, just pieces of wood, all sizes, and started a fire up, and it still had a little bit of daylight. So I said, look, I'm going to walk up to the field. Um maybe get a glimpse of a flock of turkeys or coyote or deer or something come out in this cornfield. And at that time, it was it was more of a field. There's a few houses built in there now. But So I parted away from the guys. They had a fire going at their back. They are facing the river, and the fire's at their back. And I'm telling them goodbye. I'll see you back in just a short, in a little bit, just after dark. The road, like I say, going back out the way we drove in, back toward Horsetail Road, is a muddy, extremely muddy ruts. It has a lot of ruts in it that are a foot deep, and truck just wallows around in it as it goes up and down this hill. There's an elevation increase of probably, I'd guess, 80 or 100 feet, maybe, from where we were fishing at the river to the field up top. You can't see this field until you get right up near the top of this hill. So I left away. I guess I got 50 feet from where the guys were at the fire and entered back into this road going back towards the field. This road's overgrown real bad over top, and the bushes are really thick along the sides, uh, real tight in that one spot where the mirrors on my truck would kind of scrub the bushes going in and out. Hmm. So as I start walking through this particular area, I hear something in the forest on my left side. Didn't know what it was. I thought maybe a deer or something. So I stopped looking for it. It stops. So I didn't think, you know, normal about this. So I walk on another piece. And it starts walking again. And after the third time of me stopping and it stopping, and when I'd start it start, I got the chills real bad. And I, it takes a lot to excite me in the forest. But I'd, I had pretty much ruled out of anything that I knew of that would stop when I'd stop. So <laughs> here I am uh, halfway up this road, which is only a quarter of a mile. And I have, I'm kind of in the dark part of it. I'm totally unnerved by what I'm hearing in those woods. And I'm on my knees looking under the best I can 
through this thick stuff. And keep in mind it's on the river. There's not a sound of a bird, a bug, a wind, uh, anything. And it's January, so the leaves are crackly and very loud. The, the noise just echoes down through that river bottom. So it was, it was really, um, it was really frightening, I'd have to say. So I get to the halfway point of, of being totally focused on what is this in the woods, and I can start to see the road opens up. It makes a 90-degree turn towards the west, and which is facing the sun, right? So the, the light has opened up on the road sump. And the noise has stopped. So I start hurrying my way towards the top of this hill, trying to put out what I was hearing in there because it really disturbed me, I had to say. Now, I'll tell you what it was later. I didn't know at that time. But when I get to the, just about to the top of the hill, Mel, I mean just short of the top, I begin to see um, first glimpse, I thought it was the sun at the top of the trees. And as I'm climbing up the hill, the tops of the trees on the far side of the field begin to come more visible. And at that point, I realize the sun is behind the trees. It's still daylight, but there's two things floating above the trees on the far side of the field. And I would guess they were a 1,000 feet off the ground maybe at the most. Being a pilot, I can tell you I'm not too far off. They were probably a quarter of a mile past the back side of that field, which was 200 yards wide. But they looked like setting suns, both of them. Huge, 40 feet or more around. They're side by side, and they're orange, tangerine orange, just like the sun when you can look at it in the morning, and it doesn't hurt your eyes. And it's just magnificent. Well, that's the way these two craft were. Well, I'm not quite to the top of the hill. And when I see this, I'm getting excited talking about it. It just gets me all stirred up. I start up this hill, and I see this thing, these two craft. I'm trying to to digest what it is, and I knew. I'm telling you, I knew what it was. I knew it wasn't anything that we had. I thought myself, darn, I have walked up on, on, I mean, I knew it was a UFO. I knew it. And I had, before this time, I've been a builder, a father of four children, a deacon in the church, and never thought of a UFO. Never crossed my mind. But when I saw these, uh, the fear just overtook me. So I immediately squatted down using the heel in front of me to shield me from these things. I could bend down low, and they, I couldn't see them. So I thought, darn, I'm looking back down like I'm fixing to run. And when I popped my head back up to look back at these objects, it looks as if the sky opens up. Um, all I can say, it was dark, a dark hole, and another one of these objects shoot out and zoom up within a second or two and it's sitting right beside the other two I mean to the far side it had to go further to get to where it stopped but I knew at that moment that they saw me 
I knew it saw me. I knew it. I couldn't, I can't explain it, but I knew they saw me. So I just squatted back down and I'm like, oh God, these things have seen me. What do I do? What do I do? And so I started crawling over to the ditch to these uh, reeds, like fishing pole type reeds. It's wet area in there. So I'm tangled up in these reeds trying to peep over this hill at this thing. And next thing I know, I, I'm deciding whether I should run or not. So I take off running. And I'm running. And I, I really remember the last 50 feet to the fire running, honestly. When I get to the fire, Mel, there's these three gentlemen that were there at the fire fishing, but my son's not there. Hmm. And I'm trotting up, and I'm like, you guys won't believe what I just saw. You know, I didn't realize, but in my mind, 15 or 20 minutes had passed. And they're like flipped out really bad, questioning me, where in the world have you been? And I'm like, what do you mean, where have I been? I've just been at the top of the hill. You know, I went up to the field. So I didn't really get into a lot of conversation with them. Because Christopher being gone, Chris Jr., I question them, where's Chris Jr.? I'm still, I'm blocking them out. I've got this thing in my mind, and I want to know where my son is. And they're, I'm really never really stop moving. I'm approaching them, talking. I go right on by them, because they pointed towards the back of the cul-de-sac and said, he went in there, in those woods, looking for you on foot. And still not commute, computing that he went looking for me. Because in my mind, I'm still 15 minutes from the field. You know, just, I just walked up there 15 minutes or 20 minutes ago. How long had passed? Well, it's close to 11 o'clock at night now. Huh. In reality, how many hours from the moment you left? The best we can gather is four and a half. Four and a half hours of missing time. Okay. Yeah, they went looking for me. They had driven the truck out and was all up and down the road. My son had been gone mail for two hours. And this is what really uh, got me out of sores. <laughs> because as I walked back in the woods, I'm calling out for him. Christopher, where are you, Christopher? And started yelling because I'm worried now he's lost in these woods and it's dark. Probably don't have a flashlight and it, everything looks the same in there. It's a huge place. So. Uh, this is what's going through my mind. As I start into the forest, I don't have a flashlight still, so I'm pulling the trees back so I can kind of make my way in. It's thicker on the edge. Hmm. So as I'm walking into it, he comes up from under some shrubbery, grabbing on my leg, scared me to death. I mean, that was a frightening thing. But he could not speak. He was in shock. He was trying to talk. He was trying to talk. And I'm worried what in the world has happened to him. And as I'm leading him out of the forest, he starts saying, Daddy, where have you been? Where have you been? He said, I've been pinned down here. And and we figured out it was two hours, pretty much. He was there. But he began to tell me about these two red lights that come walking from down the road this same area that I told you I heard this noise in the woods on my left. Well, that's where he was looking. The way I walked up the field, 
he was at the back looking up that way and saw these two red lights coming down the road. So they got between him and the fire where he was standing and the guys fishing and he couldn't get they were they had had him in between uh, so he couldn't go anywhere. So he kind of squats down in the bushes trying to see what these red lights are. Scared, didn't know what they were. And as he as they get closer to him, he begins to see there are two little beings about three and a half, four feet tall, look kind of like children, four-year-old children, you might say, that size. And they're invisible, but they he could see their eyes. Their eyes were red. Um, now, I'm giving you a lot more detail than he was at that very moment. I understand we've talked sure. about it. But at that moment, he's describing these glowing, white, glowing creatures with red eyes that look like one would close and the other one would stay open. And they went back and forth. One would open while one closed. And they would close from the top and the bottom to the center like shutters. He said, Daddy, one was always looking at me. And I couldn't move, I couldn't speak, I couldn't talk, I couldn't scream, I couldn't do anything. And why did you leave me? And he's panicking, he's in shock. And so I'm leading him, and he's telling me all this back to the fire. Now these guys at the fire are beginning to worry, what's going on? You know, what what's happening? Um, they couldn't really make sense because I'd been gone. They'd been searching for me. Now here Christopher's all upset as we're dragging him back to the fire. So the conversation went to kind of um, nervous and quiet at the same time. Everybody's looking at one another. And I'm very careful not to say a whole lot of what I saw because of the way Christopher's acting. I didn't want to scare him anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, at that moment, one of the guys points pointing to the sky says look and everybody looks up and I'm telling you Mel what it looked like was a whole constellation of stars just moved out of place the best we guess I guess it was eight or nine stars it looked like stars brilliant white objects like the brightest Venus and they just were stationary, and then when he pointed, I saw them all. They moved away, way out from one another. They came back together. They zoomed around and around and all over, and everybody's standing there staring up. And three of these things come straight over really, really fast, getting getting larger and larger, and actually landed on the opposite side of the river from us. And I would guess, the best we could guess, they were, you know, 100 yards in the bushes or the woods on the other side of the river. This was the first time that the other three guys saw something. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, the woods are lit bright. And the best way I can explain it, they were brilliant white when they were up there and... As they got lower, they slowed down their color. When they zoomed very fast, they'd be very, very bright white. When they'd slow down, they'd be yellow. When they'd stop, they'd be orange. Is the best way I can explain it. Mm-hmm. But they landed in the woods, and they were pulsating like welders. If you had three welding machines spread out 40 yards apart, 
a hundred yards in the woods, and you could understand what we were looking at. There were three different ones, and they were glowing in the woods. In fact, there was a guy that called that was coon hunting, a witness that called in and said he was hunting on that side of the river and scared him, and he and he left from in there. But he was actually on that side. But so we ended up leaving our fishing poles. Um, everything, all our tackle, gear, drink cooler, all beside the river. Fire still going. Nobody's, I mean, pandemonium set in at this time when these things landed. We all scurry, jump in the truck, and take off down this dirty, ruddy dirt road, muddy. I mean, it's been dry a week or so, but it's still mud in these ruts in the bottom. The truck just bounces back and forth. So we couldn't get out of there quick enough. The guys were hollering. And as we start up this road, I'm being, um, back of my chair is being beat on. They're screaming, go, 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 faster, faster. And I'm complaining, I can't, I can't go this fast. And I didn't see it, but it was, um, one of the guys was saying that there was a beam behind the truck chasing the truck on all fours. In fact, he's on tape for saying it uh, with MUFON. The thing was running the truck, and he said when we came over the hill, and I felt like we were um, one of those shows on television, Starskin Hutch, or where you're in the air when you cross the hill. We were like that when we went over that hill. I had to slam on brakes. Because there's a craft sitting in the road in front of us. Has the road blocked? Well, I asked this guy, where did this creature go? And he said, I don't know. It just disappeared. Just before the hands was grabbing the back of the truck. And he described it running on all fours, like the same thing Junior described. It'd run around on all fours. It'd stand up and walk on two legs. and Or it could run, and it would run like an antelope. Front feet, back feet, just very fast so here we are now everybody's completely um, in panic wondering uh, if we're going to get to see our families I mean it was just drastic and this thing is sitting in front of us in the, in the road in the in the field now we just in, in front of you there, there, yeah. it was chasing you and now it's in front of you now there's a craft the very craft mill that I left that put me out that I know now, but at that time I didn't. Put me out and I walk down back to the fire, run back to the fire. It's still there, and it's sitting in the road in front of us. And so... <laughs> when you say craft, do you mean, was it an orb, or was it no, metallic-looking or physical? It's physical. It has changed from this orange spear, round spear, to this egg-shaped looking machine that actually looked like it was alive. It looked like it had spikes or blades of light that looked like actually real, but it was actually light. The light was going around this thing to where it looked like blades or spikes. Mm -hmm. And it was hovering five, ten feet off the ground out near the highway, which was 200 yards away. And we're sitting here looking at it, all five of us in the truck, tailgate towards the river, 
and there's a, a mobile home, a single wide mobile home to our right. There's a lot on the other property. And one of the guys said, hey, I know who lives there. Nobody's going to believe we need to get a phone. None of us had a cell phone. So I pull over in this man's property, pull up to his front deck, and just drove right up in his yard. His cars were parked there. His door, his screen door was the only thing was there. His front door was open, and you could see the TV through the door playing. One of the guys jumps out of the truck and beats on the door, knocks on the door. I blew the horn at the same time. We were all still looking over our shoulder at this craft hovering in the highway. We were trying to get other witnesses. We couldn't get anybody to the door. And actually, two days later, the guys went back to get the fishing gear, stopped by there, knew this gentleman. And he said that he was there the whole time. He never left, he and his wife. We felt that odd. So even though you were, you guys were yelling, they, they didn't respond? Didn't respond. I blew huh. the horn. I had my front bumper within five, ten feet of his front door. Hmm. A single-wide mobile home. And you could see right through the front door, this TV playing, his two vehicles were there. And they're out, you know, shouting through the door. We're panicked because this craft's sitting between us and the highway. And this road we're on is actually part of his driveway or one there's a double road actually there dirt road so we get back in the he gets back in the truck and i back back out in the the road facing or on marsh road to pay road and here's this thing still hovering this was reported to move on what i'm telling you all this was reported to move on all this uh, all three, uh, all five of us actually heard gunshots. There were three gunshots. Uh, it was boom, boom. I mean, really quick together. Not the gunshots were originating from where? We could best we could tell was um, kind of north of there, very close between us and this craft. There's houses all in that area, you know, on the road, the main road. When you get back to the asphalt where this craft was setting. There's a few houses there where someone in one of those houses was shooting, and it was very loud and it was very close. But long story short, this thing turns straight at us and starts towards us. And it comes and it comes and it starts gaining a little altitude. By the time it gets to us, I had the sunroof open on the on the truck. I could shoot it through the sunroof with a slingshot, a homemade one, and hit it. I mean, it was that low and that slow. No sound, absolutely quiet. And it clears the trees, which are, you know, 50-foot tall trees behind us, behind the truck, where we come up the hill. And it turns towards the north and shoots off at a speed I can't describe. I mean, it went from hardly moving to really fast in like a second. And it, it, it appeared to be alive. I mean, it was, light was going around it and around it, and it was revolving in every direction. The light uh, is hard to explain. I, the best way I can say, and and I told this, um, the, in, the, in the book of Ezekiel, where he described a wheel within a wheel, that's what come to mind with me because of the way 
maybe he was trying to describe motion within motion. I don't know. But when the thing cleared the truck, um, you can bet you everybody was like, let's go. So I gassed it, and away we went. We made it out to the paved road. It's asphalt road, marsh road. And now the guys in the truck are um, fighting. Who's going to get to go home first? <laughs> and I'm hearing one of them's like, it was panic, total panic. I'm trying to be calm and quiet, and, I, and I'm telling them, look, I can't drive any faster. You guys work out. And these guys, how old are these other guys? 40, 45 years old, 38 years old, grown men. They've probably never been scared as much as they were that night. It takes a lot to scare these old guys. I'm telling you, they're they're rough and tough, good, honest construction, um, good construction men can do mm -hmm. it all. But they're simple people, hunters. They live in the forest with a gun and have children. They're just good people. But it takes a lot to scare them. And at that time, we were all in total panic. We are like, where's the Air Force? Why isn't Fort Bragg? Fort Bragg's a major uh, military base, real close. Uh, 20 minutes or 20 miles away by air. 30 miles, maybe. And we were expecting to see the cavalry show up in any minute. Because there's craft. Remember, there's, there's three in... I see three at the top of the hill, and we see three land and several flying around in the sky, and now one's in the front of the road. So the air, the sky is full of moving lights and physical craft. And so we start towards these guys' house. Two of them live side by side, about two and a half miles away. And further past, an, another two miles further, or three miles further, is, the, is, is one gentleman lives by himself. And believe it or not, he won out. So we took him home first. On the way, there's an area that uh, locals around at that time uh, watched this piece of property um, be timbered. They took all the timber off of it. And so everybody called it a cut down, big two, 300-acre piece of property. 200 acres probably of just timbered land and it was full of looked like a city of lights in there and we've all hunted it over the years and there's not even a house in there so everybody's looking at everybody in the truck at that moment and it's only a mile from 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 where we just started up the road is just cut down and now there's lights in these woods I didn't stop. I slowed down, but I was being told to hurry, hurry, hurry. So we continued on. What it was, we figured out. There's this craft that was tracking us off our left side as we were driving along. Huge craft. We get to this high-tension power line. All this was reported now to MUFON. There's a, a, a power line that has the the... The big, big, tall poles with the, they call them high-tension lines. They're, they're, the poles are 200 yards apart, maybe, and the mm -hmm. lines droop real big, you know, those kinds. So we have to drive under one of these. Well, as we approach it, we all see this humongous triangular-looking craft, black, 
sitting right on top of the power line. We actually drive within 200 feet of it, and I try to stop. I'm in awe. This craft, was it different than the ones that you had previously seen? Yes, it was humongous, huge. It was wider than the, the opening where these two power lines went through. It won't one power line, it's two. Uh, Google Earth, um, it was two lines, two apart or three apart. I would say 200 feet wide by uh, half a mile across, maybe, mm-hmm. this craft, if I had to guess it. It was huge, and it's sitting under this power, on top of this power line, just above it. So as I try to slow down, they become, they get harder on me. They don't stop, don't stop, and it's in a real sharp, bad curve. Um, so I have to slow down. They call it a dead man's curve. I slowed down really as slow as I could get through it, and they're pushing me. So we go home. We go to this, the, this one guy's house and drop him off. We turn around and we come back to drop the other two gentlemen off. But we didn't have to go as far as that power line. We, they both lived just past it. So Chris Jr. and I dropped the last two guys off. And instead of driving back to our house the way we should or normally do, we took the long way around, which was... Um, four or five miles out of the way. And why do you do that? Because we were scared to go back that way. Mm, okay. And, and so on. We were just, Christopher was already in such shock. Uh, and everybody else, myself, uh, it just, it was a harrowing, I, I, best, I guess the best way I can say it, um, scary, frightening ride that I wouldn't want to ever go through again. None of us. We actually thought the whole world was being invaded and it was over. We would not see our family. It was that frightening. To see these things in the real is different than thinking you've seen something or or imagining or wondering, did you? But when you see it, you know. You look at it in a different way. The fear that comes within you don't, don't ever leave. Why do you think they cause so much fear? Um, I don't know, Mel, but if one walked up in a crowd, you'd see it set in everybody. Or if one of these crap landed, it's just something that we're told is not here. That, um, I don't know. I just know that I don't fear it anymore like I did uh, because I see it in a different way, but my son sure does. But it does create fear, and it creates an, a, a reality that you see life in a different way. You know. And for the record, I had asked uh, Chris if he could get his uh, son, Chris Jr., to be part of this interview. And what, what didn't you tell us what your response was? Well, um, Christopher had a really bad experience over this. Extremely hard dealing with it. Um, He left home three times because of it. He has numerous times um, gotten up in two and three in the morning and won't sleep in his room. He says they come back. Um, and when he left home, he left for months at the time. Left walking one time. It's that drastic. It's that bad. It's been that tough. Uh, it's not been an easy thing, I can tell you. 
have they returned since this event happened? Uh, sure. Oh, they have? Yes, I've seen them more than one time. In fact, my wife, um, born and raised in a Pentecostal church, which is a very serious Southern, um, a very conservative Christian church. Yeah. Um, I was born a Baptist. She was born this. And when I told her about this, she thought I had lost my mind. She uh, didn't want me talking about it for fear that I was messing with demons and all sorts of stuff. And the whole church got behind it. But it's been the hardest thing I have ever had to deal with in my life. My wife left me for three or four weeks over this. Uh, she came home, but I started praying that she would experience something, and my children would that would make them know that I'm not, I'm not being dishonest about this. And they started seeing things. They started seeing the craft. This is the part that took James and I, James Fox and I, by surprise, uh, Chris. I can understand how perhaps your wife might not believe you, but if you had your son and three other men involved in their witnesses, she still didn't believe you? That's what this world is made up of, of all sorts of uh, churches out there and different religions and different views. And, and everybody's not as open-minded as you are and I am now, I can tell you. Um, and, and she is too. She's seen it, but no, she didn't believe me. Wait, has she seen this too? Yeah, she's seen the craft, in fact. Oh, wait a second. Hold on, hold on. I, I want to go in, in parts because now I'm fascinated because you and I stopped talking when uh, they were they were shutting the night at the event where you and I attended. And the part, if I remember correctly, there was one part where you, ha you have a, a lot of animals right. in, your, in your house. I, explain that part. Um, let me be sure that the part that you're trying to get me to explain that, that she's, that she saw these beans or... No, before that, before that, at one point, the animals were going absolutely crazy. Oh, oh okay. All right. Let me get back to that. That's back to that night. <laughs> um, Chris Jr. and I took the long way home. And we made it out to this big four-lane road. It's called Highway 87. And started south on it towards our home, which is about 10 miles away. We noticed there were six, five or six cars pulled alongside 87. People out of the cars looking at this object. We can still see this big, huge object over this big field. We just made a kind of a loop around this big head of woods to get back home. And there was other people saw this thing. There were several that reported. In fact, I have emails of other folks in this town still that reported it, uh, seeing the craft that flew over their house that very night. And I think it was eight in total or so. So you even have more witnesses. Sure, yeah. In fact, there's a scientist from Florida that has found other witnesses recently. I mean, very recently, within a month or so that still coming forward, like the coon hunter that came forward. But long story short, we drove on home, Christopher and I, 
And this child is in total panic. Now, he's he's seen something that has scared him so bad to where he was paralyzed. He couldn't move. He couldn't talk. And he's, he can't hardly talk much now. He's, at this point, he's in having a hard time. And I am, too. I'm, I'm wondering what, you know, how to handle this situation. The gist, of, you know, I've just seen the craft in the air and, and, and the craft at the top of the hill and the craft buzzing and one sitting over the power lines, but I hadn't seen that in the alien. But he's describing an alien to us in all these details. And we're all like grown men looking at one another, hearing this and not answering much. And, and he's really panicking about it, crying about it and so on. So we get home. And he rushes through the house, pulling all the blinds down, turning all the lights inside on, outside on. He would open a bathroom door, turn the light on, lock the door. Open a bedroom door, pull all the blinds down, turn the lights on, lock the doors. I mean, he was just panicking doing that. And we'd been home a half hour, finally, I guess, getting him back to one part of the house, our entertainment room. I called it the Red Room. We had a big screen TV. We were sitting, turning the TV on, hoping to see this on the news. We just knew it was going to be on all over the local news, you know, UFO invasion and so on. This is what we're looking for. And my father lives 40 yards, 30 yards from me, thirty less than 30 yards away. We live on a side-by-side, and he has a pretty good-sized garage out back, straight behind his house, and a huge dog kennel. My father's raised dogs from before I was born. I grew up with them, dozens, 40, 50, 100 at a time, hunting dogs, hound dogs, deer dogs, coon dogs, bear dogs. We did it all, bird dogs, and he still has dogs. He's got a real nice kennel covered in clothes. Everything but heat and air conditioning. But it's it's located next to this garage, which basically everything in the garage he and I share. Uh-huh. Tools and so on. So Christopher and I are sitting in this room. I'm trying to talk to him. He don't want to talk a whole lot. And the dogs start going nuts. The The hound dogs. And there's 15 of them out there. And they're... Not very far out behind the house. It's a real quiet night, and they're so loud. I mean, they would wake people up, you know, two houses away. This is the same night? The same night. And they're okay. they're just hysterical. And it's the kind of bark, the kind of growl, the kind of bark that is, I see something out there. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. And it's fear. Fear bark that these dogs were doing. And it, man, it was making me nervous. I said, Junior, somebody is breaking in Dad's shop. It's got to be. I got to go see who this is. And he's like, no, Dad, don't, no, Daddy, don't go out the door. Don't go. And I'm like pulling away towards the door. I've got to go before somebody, uh, you know, what are you going to do? I said, I'll just run out in the dark. They'll not see me. I've got my dog here. Um this big Chesapeake Bay Retriever, 100 pounds. She was sitting on the back steps, and she was barking. And her hair was standing up all up and down her back. And I'm like, I'm going to be in the woods. I'll, you know, I'll stay in the shadow. And I'll just put her in on whoever's in there, and she'll chase them out. And maybe we'll see them run across the yard. You know, run them out. 
So I open the door. She takes off. Now I'm looking at her through this glass door. Her hair all standing up. She's barking, looking back at me. When I open the door, she takes off. I take off running behind her. Well, Christopher, not wanting to leave me, has me by the back of the shirt, and he's running with me. And we run across the, the grass, and there's a, a road that goes through the forest over to the kennel. It was a short road, dirt road with trees and woods. So we have the dark to our advantage. We run following this dog, and when I catch up with this Chesapeake, all these dogs are facing the rear of the kennel, deep in the behind it in the in the forest and i'm confused a bit i'm like i turn around and i spoke to junior and said dang they're they're behind the kennel the, the 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 dogs are facing the forest the garage is is in front of them you know i got the garage i'm looking at the garage and the kennel but they're looking out back and rose my chesapeake is looking that way and she's barking and growling and I said, uh, Christopher, I'm going to send her in. We're going to run back to to the grass. So I uh, give her a little tap on the rear end, and she jumps over into the in the bushes, and I turn and I run to head her off. Well, I run back out the way I came to the grass in the rear of my yard and straight back to the back of the property. And I find me a tree. I run up to uh, this big oak tree and out of breath put my hands against it. And I look back to see if Christopher was behind me thinking maybe he had come along. Of course, he didn't. He turned and went back towards the house. But when I look back to see if he was there, I'm out of breath panting. The dog's still coming. I'm hearing the dog coming. My hands are against this oak tree, and there's this being behind me, the very one that he described on the river. And it's standing arm's length away, four and a half feet, maybe five feet away. I could reach over and touch it if I want. Describe him. Describe the being. He was, or it was, glowing. It was the size of a child, four years old. Um, his head wasn't, it wasn't no, a gray, you know, I'm not familiar at that time. I am now, I've looked at a lot of different photos, but, uh, I didn't know what an alien looked like. And the way I described them to Mufon was they were glowing. They glow the color of the moon, about like a soft glow, like the moon, just gentle. Mm-hmm. The forest floor, the trees about was all lit up. They looked as if, they had um, glass on their body covering, sort of. Maybe, um, I don't know why, but I could see the reflection from its eyes. And the eyes purely looked mechanical, round like the size of a marker on a transfer truck. Those little lights, the little round lights you see on a transfer truck. It's about the way their eyes looked, sort of digital looking. So you're describing more or less a biological robot. That's what I suspect at that time. When I went through the regression, um, they they called them. It was a different being that was on the ship that 
I remember in the regression, seven-foot-tall beings, and they described these as what they called their children. Which Let, let's let's let let's. I, I like to go in chronological order. Let's talk about the regression later. Just that the perception you you had then was more of a biological robot at that time. Well, at that time, I wasn't sure, but it, I kind of had that idea. But I can tell you this: when I saw it, uh, you know, just keep in mind if you could could understand I was in a full run, hard as I could run, being quiet as I could, ran up to the tree and, you know, excited. I turned to look to see if my son's there and here this thing is standing between me and the way I just came. And it shocked me really bad. So I turned and put my back against the tree and all I could think was, okay, you just screwed up. Uh, and I said, you got me. I give up. I didn't want to confront it. I didn't have the even thought to confront it. It scared me that bad. And as I'm looking at it, I began to feel this peace come over me. And it was like, we're not here to hurt you. Um, this peace came all over because when I walked away from that, when I reported it to move on at that point, I said, I believe they're angels of some sort. And I said it from that Point. And the reason why is because of the the benevolence that I felt from it. It was being. What was your dog at the point? You had a dog that was coming with you. My dog's still coming. It's still coming through the forest, and I hear okay. it. And I'm standing there a total of a minute, a minute and a half, face to face to this thing, going from fright to now feeling like it's um, it's not here to hurt me. It's more or less watching me. Uh, why I don't know. I'm scared to death, uh, but I didn't feel threatened. I guess would be the best at that point. I felt no threat at all. And as my dog got near, really close, it just disappeared. It went away, and my dog ran right on by me and ran another quarter of a mile, right on off of my property down another property over or two. And I didn't see her back to the next morning. And, and when you said that the being disappeared, did it run away or did it just, just vanish? It vanished. It was like it wasn't there anymore. It just blown, it was gone. Disappeared. But the funny thing is the dog ran a quarter of a mile or more on past like it was still chasing something. Mm. And I'm very familiar with hunting dogs. I've hunted them all my life. And it was definitely running something. Well, I don't know. After this thing vanished, it kept going. And what happened afterwards? Well, um, I take off back towards the house, worried about Christopher. And at the same time, feeling um, a bit safer. Having this angelic feeling. I had this angelic feeling. The, the, the benevolent... Um, that it didn't mean any harm. It's just curious and this kind of thing. And I'm walking back toward the house. We're kind of jogging my way back. And and Christopher is, I'm not telling him now what I'm just seeing because of the shock he's already in. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm not telling him that. I'm just, as I approach the door, I can see him through the door looking out. And I come on in and he's, uh, I'm like, um, I didn't see what it was that that nothing came out, nothing ran across. So I'm avoiding the situation for a minute. 
and he's wound up. He's really wound up, and he's wound up. And I decided at that point I had to have some fresh air. So I walk over, and, and I'll tell you, I don't smoke anymore. But at that time, two years before that, when I sold my company, I started smoking. And sick on top of that, it just my nerves were bad. So I had to have a cigarette. And well, he wasn't going to let me go outside to smoke, which is where I normally did. So I walked over in in my entertainment room, and I pulled the blind up. He's behind me. No, don't do that. Don't do that. I'm like, son, I've got to have a cigarette before I pop. So when I raised this blind up, Mel, I look. Now all the lights are on all the way around the house. There's this seven-foot-tall creature walking towards my window 20 feet away. And this is when I freak out, totally freak out. And I grabbed my son. I said, we're leaving. I felt from just leaving the forest with this little entity feeling no threat, no fear, to seeing this big, tall thing that looked uh, horrible next to this, the fear came over me to where I grabbed Christopher, and we ran, and we got in the truck, carried a couple of rifles, did he see the creature? No, he didn't. And I didn't waste no time telling him I saw something in the yard. We got to go. Mm. So we run out, we get in the truck, and we drive up to my dad's house. And there was nobody else in the house? Not with he and I. My wife was gone. She had left for a couple of days to, with her mother, okay. with the other kids. We got four children, Christopher being the oldest, mm -hmm. a little girl that just turned 16 last week. So he and I drive up to my dad's bedroom window. Now, I have got to tell him, you know, what just happened. And it's, I don't know, 4 o'clock in the morning now, 3 o'clock in the morning. It's late, 2 or 3 o'clock. I, I couldn't really tell you, um, but it was we in the middle of the night. We got home about 11.30, sat around a half hour, then Rosie took me to the forest. All this is probably three in the morning. So we pull up to Dad's window, and he's like, "You've lost your mind. You've not seen any uh, UFOs in the yard or, or these aliens." I was trying to tell him about. It. He he thinks I've gone nuts. So Christopher and I take the truck, and we drive about four miles away to this big hay field. We parked the truck right in the middle of the field, and that's where we spent the rest of the night. We didn't stay at home any longer that night and came home, you know, about mid-morning the next day. But that was one more terrifying event the whole night, the whole day. All this, what I've spoken, was reported to, to MUFON and to the investigators up front. Can you describe the creature, the seven-feet-tall creature? Yeah, um... I couldn't that night other than it was 20 yards away, and I saw it. It was very tall and very thin and very frightening. It was looking, and it was walking towards me. It had a, kind of a gentle-looking walk, but it looked very scary. So I, I had a very short glimpse of it, and I slammed the window down. What did it look like, the face? I drew it, Mel. I drew it with a, pen, uh, with a pencil. And then I painted it, a four-foot-tall painting, uh, in 08 or 09. It was um, the color of an avatar creature. Bluish? Bluish green, bluish. Um, sometimes I've seen 
colors like it in Egypt and those paintings over there. You see certain beings on the wall that are greenish blue with us the way these look. They had eyes like ours, not like these great big black eyes you see on on these other beings. These had mm-hmm. bigger eyes than ours, but like ours, white around blue, bluish green eyes, blue. So when you entered the hayfield, that was the the end of the experience for that night. For that night, yes, sir. Then you came back home mid morning. Now, what happened the next morning? I came home the the next morning, mid-morning, and, of course, my wife was not in yet. Um, she was away for a couple of days, and I just called her up and said, you'll never believe what, what we experienced we had. And she said, well, you can't talk about this in front of the kids. And, and you know, I was expecting something different, but... I tried to talk to my dad about it, and I come to realize really quick that um, nobody cared. I mean, I could not understand for the life of me. It's the greatest experience that anyone could could see and, and how anybody couldn't believe you. When your own parents and your own husband or wife don't want to believe you, it makes it really hard. I can tell you it makes it hard. In fact... I went into depression for a year. I didn't report it under threat of losing my family for 10 months. I, I sat in a room, this entertainment room, for for 10 months. It was October of 07. The sighting was January the 8th of 07. And I didn't even have TV. That's how simple we were. We didn't have television. We had TV with DVDs. We didn't have cable and all. So after several months of sitting in this room, I wasn't working. I had quit work and miserable, totally miserable of wanting to tell the world and fearing uh, I would lose my children and my family. So I not only started praying that they would see it, um, I got cable vision and turn the first thing that comes on good is UFO files (laughs) and I'd never seen this kind of stuff so I got really interested and saw Stanton Friedman and I thought well gosh if a man of this caliber can get on television and talk about it and people will believe him well maybe I need to tell him and he was talking about MUFON, and that's how I got MUFON's name. And I actually typed in uh, the experience, and for two weeks I agonized every day, not telling anyone if I'm going to hit send or not. It was that drastic. Hold for a second, and uh, forgive me for jumping in, but I can understand that if you are surrounded by people who are very conservative religious, and they have their beliefs set that they may not believe you, and they may want you to seek professional psychological help. But you have your son. You have Christopher Jr., who also experienced the same. What did they say? What did your wife say and anybody else who found out about your story when the two of you, and how about the other three, man? Uh, They didn't want to believe it, male. I'm telling you that it was it was total 
whether they wanted to believe it or not, it's a bit like the Amish. It's just certain things you don't say or talk about. And these, in this, in this belief, um, in the more serious ones, they don't have television. They don't wear neckties because it's too vain. They never cut their hair. They don't buy on Sunday. So you understand what I'm sure. looking at, you know. And I love my family, and I would never trade them for anything. And I understand, and I respect what they believe. But it was miserable, and it was terrible, and it was an experience that has been ongoing, and I finally have. I, I understand. I understand. But how about the other three men? Did they did they come out to support you in in terms of of saying, "Hey, I was there. I saw." Well, sure. They we made a pact that very day, or the next actually the next day. And when I dropped them off that night, they were one of them called his mother. They and he went to stay with his mother. Thought that he would never see her again. It was that drastic. Mm. But they came back around, brought the fishing poles back here and we all agreed that we'd never talk about it again their wives didn't like it and basically advised them they should never talk about it and that's what we've done i've come open with it because i reported it and i was abducted by these beings and i can't ever get around the missing time i can't ever get around knowing what i saw and the experience. And that's why I've talked about it. But Chris Jr. will not talk about it, and I, although I wish he would. And, and the, I, I go back to the other three men. I'm just, I'm just trying to understand. There's five witnesses here alone. Plus, you had that coon hunter. Plus, you had other people who are now coming forward. The three, the three men, are they still keeping a secret? Yes. They're friends of mine. We still speak once in a while. I see them. Of course, we don't have any work going on, and without the work, we don't really hang out, but they're keeping it a secret. Um, I saw Gene here a year ago, or just a few months ago, and it was back, it had to have been um, in the spring, and he mentioned it very briefly, just like... um, Have you seen any UFOs lately? And I said, well, not Hmm. really. I didn't even want to go into conversation, but we don't talk about it. And they have all children, small children, and their wives don't believe in it. And they're in the same type of religious-type community. Not that strict by no means. There's the Pentecostal, but... But you would think that they would like to tell the story, even if they do it with a pseudonym, even if they do it anonymously, at least... To find answers, because I bet you they just really don't know what happened that day. So, what happened in the weeks, months after the event? Well, I sit in this room in depression, um, miserable, and wishing, praying that my family would see this thing. And this is one thing I do not understand, and, and everywhere I go I have asked this, and But when I first noticed what I'm fixing to tell you is 10 months after I reported it to MUFON, within a few days I get a call and I freak out. Oh my, uh, I didn't think anybody would ever respond, but now here's somebody from California's calling wanting to investigate and talk and I kind of 
got anxiety and said, no, I don't want to talk about it. And they shut the case down to December. They sent me a letter. We're going to close the case. And I finally got a nerve back up. Now, from October to December, to send them a letter back and say, under threat that I may lose my family, I'm willing to talk. I can't hold it any longer. So the uh, ju- uh, the investigator shows up. Somebody from California. How come nobody from your area? Well, the, the, I started talking with someone from California, and a guy from Raleigh shows up. Okay. When he shows up, wonderful, nice fella, I'm really worried how my wife is going to react. Now I got uh, somebody from from the UFO world here at the house asking questions, and she comes right in and sits down, and she's listening to him talk to me, and I'm describing a few things, and she looks over and she said, "I got to know one thing." She said. What does shadow people have to do with UFOs? And it caught me off a guard. But then she began to tell a story about Chris Jr. Because she's really worried about her son. Mm -hmm. And she's really spent a lot of time. Even though she don't want me to talk about it, she don't want it brought up around our little girl and our little children and scare them all. She's really working with her baby, her her oldest son, and she's really in him, and he shows her these creatures that are walking around in our house, shadowy creatures. I had seen them before, but I had no clue that she had. So at that point, one year to the date, it was the first week of January, is when things changed. Is when she began to tell the story of seeing these shadowy beings. And that's the part I was saying I don't understand why when we see these craft and these beings in the flesh and then soon after we start seeing these beings walk through the house. Not just one, but one and two. And they'd walk along and you'd see them go down the hall and take a right and turn and go through walls and stuff. And it not just me, not just Christopher, but my wife and some of the other children. And friends. We're seeing them and hearing them and ruckuses in the house, things turning over. My wife was at the the sink and was washing dishes and something shoved her twice across the room. And she's telling this to this investigator. And I'm thinking, oh, boy. Never to you. (laughs) Never to you. Never told me. Never told me. Not one thing. And I'm still thinking divorce and she's talking (laughs) to the investigator about these beings she's seeing and feeling and shove her in the house and... That, I looked at her, I said, I've been praying you'd see something. And she said, well, don't ever pray for me again. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's crazy. But it's been a ride, I had to say. Uh, There's been several occasions that um, I've seen the craft and... uh, In fact, there is a circular depression in my yard that is 16 foot around and smushed down about three feet, three inches in depth in a beautiful centipede yard. And there's a line where something come like it skidded in to a landing and stopped in three different spots. Have you got that analyzed? Yeah, pictures of it. They um, supposedly did soil samples or samples of uh, this tree because this tree that I was leaning against that 
this being was looking at me. This tree died. Hmm. The limbs off. Big giant oak tree just fell apart and died. It's still there, falling piece by piece. And the results come back that it had. Um, my wife heard what they said. I never saw the results, but she could tell you gladly it was something um, radiation, and it was some kind of uh, this fungus on it that was not normal for this area. The grass and all it just killed it. There was dirt. It went from from a beautiful lawn to a depression and a donut, a little circle patch of grass in the middle, two foot big, and the rest it killed the grass to just dirt. And this is about a year after the event? Yes. So after this event where your wife all of a sudden opens up, you didn't see that coming. How did it progress? It's progressed on to where um, we uh, agreed to do this show at Discovery and got a lot of publicity. Uh, not a great deal, but quite a bit. But the sad thing was, is all my children were in, in, in school and high school and elementary and middle school all spread out. Mm. And they were being picked on severely bad. Uh. Chris Jr. wouldn't continue to school because of that. That's part of the agony we've had to deal with. Um, it has really set him back because of this, but uh, he's doing good now. He's got his own little business going, and he's trying, but he still doesn't want to talk about about this, period. I understand. So at that time, because you went public, everybody in school started uh, mocking the kids? Mocking the kids, ridiculing the kids, and... They kept their chins up and proud of their father and um, just kind of made them more withdrawn, you might say, where normal kids have lots of friends running all up and everywhere where mine stay at home and play pianos and guitars and haven't had the friends. Right. And Chris, you were not looking for attention. You were not looking to sell the story to Steven Spielberg or to, at the time, you were not seeking any attention, were you? No, sir. I never have. I've never, um, in fact, I hid from it. Uh, the the MUFON asked me to do this, this uh, thing on Discovery, and I did. And that was, was right after the investigation. They went right on into the show and... And they did that, and from that point, the, it aired, and all the ridicule come down on the kids. But I didn't do it for, for publicity. I didn't do it for money. It wasn't that I needed the money. I'm not. Uh, it's not about money. It's about there's something out there that is there that we as a society are being told it's not there. But I'm telling you, it's there. And when you see it, you never be the same. You know, I grew up a Catholic, very conservative family as well. And when you discuss these topics, of course, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, maybe you need a, an exorcism. But it's probably because they have an experience for themselves. People in your congregation, people in your family, that know of your story now that a few years have gone by and you've had some some exposure. How do they react these days about this? Well, um, my family being uh, 
other my mother and my dad will talk about it gladly because they have living next door to me they have seen the craft mm. um more than one time and once is enough for my father that he finally said son i, I doubted you all you all this time for five years but now i know you're telling the truth but the rest of the family we don't discuss it at all we never do and i honestly I can tell you that I have been forced to completely, basically make all new friends. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but uh, it sounds a little bit of, of, of my circle as well. When you start discussing these topics or going through some of this yourself, you have to uh, make new friends because the old friends just simply don't get it. I, I don't. I don't have any of my old friends. I mean, they're still there, but we don't communicate. I've of course. Got all new Yeah, they, they probably think you you just uh, became uh, delusional. But you had some big hitters in the MUFON community that came to research your case. And I, I know a few of those people. Tell us, how, how did they get in touch with you and what happened? Well, they called based on um, my report, I guess, and... They did a very thorough, very hard investigation. There was many as six investigators at my house pretty regularly for six months. And they asked the same questions a thousand times and to the point where I got angry with them. Um, I'm like, look, you know, I want questions answered. I want to know what it is I saw. I want to know, does anybody else have these kind of experiences? I want to know what I want to know. And I kept saying this, and they're like, well, we can't muddy the, the investigation. I said, well, this has been six months, and I've told you this story over and over and over. I've written it down. You've written it down. You've gotten my interview on tape. You've got all the other witnesses, an hour apiece on tape. So now tell me why you came to my house. Tell me why you're investigating this. And the words I was told was that in 1952, there was a big wave of sightings that went on, which I wasn't familiar with. They told me to look it up, and, and since then I have. And there was UFOs that buzzed the White House that year. Oh, yeah. I mean, they filmed it. Sure. But the guy said, and I'm not using names but they were heavy hitters. And he said, because of the way you reported it, you and your son, these glowing beings, uh, these beings that appeared to be interdimensional, they could come in and out, they could pop out of, uh, they could disappear and come back. The craft did. You know, I saw one come from out of a hole. And this is the way I reported it. They said, well, in 1952, these beings were reported some 2,000 times around the world. And MUFON wasn't in existence at that time. Right. But they knew about it and that they had not been reported or heard of since. So they were very interested and came to to do this hardcore investigation. And they did. And they really, really did a thorough job. There was a former international director of MUFON, James Carrion. Was he involved in this case? He was there. He he came to my house personally two or three times. He came to your house personally. That that shows you that uh, this was a an important enough case for him to come here. Can you share the experience you had with uh, James Carrion? 
Um, yeah, James is a nice guy. He's he's not real talkative. He's very quiet. Um, you know, I I just say he did his job. I I don't. I'm gonna refrain from saying anything negative about anybody. I don't want to by no means. Uh, but James is a nice fellow. He did he did the best he could. <laughs> But uh, understand that this this show that we're dealing with here tonight is called Veritas, which means truth. I don't want you, if possible, to hold back at all, because I want to share the story the way it happened. What was the outcome of the MUFON investigation? It was um, it was kind of disheartening. Thank you for listening to segment one of this edition of Project Vox Populi, a spin-off of Veritas Radio. At the beginning of segment two, I have included audio excerpts from a TV documentary that aired in 2008. You will hear from Chris Bledsoe's son, Chris Jr., the three other witnesses, his wife, Yvonne, Dr. Michael O'Connell, regression hypnotherapist, performing a regression. Dr. O'Connell was a Harvard graduate, and former student of Dr. Joe Mack. Dr. O'Connell became close friend with Chris Bledsoe throughout the years and recently passed away. You will also hear a psychiatric social worker give her professional opinion. And then we will continue with our interview with Chris Bledsoe. To listen to segment two and the rest of this important case, if you are not a Veritas subscriber, go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. And remember, if you or someone you know should be on Project Vox Populi, go to our website and click on the contact button to submit your details there. Thank you.